The episode you're about to hear from us here at Total Reboot is a real banger. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Just a little thing from me at the top. We recorded this one remotely, and there was a little problem with my microphone, so it sounds a little bit shitter than it does right now for the rest of the episode. But bear with it, because I think this is uh, one of my favorite episodes in quite some time. Enjoy, babies. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's least coherent podcast network. Hello and welcome to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the freaking internet, baby, that dares to discuss cinema. We are in the midst of our Screen Ages miniseries, and as we have been doing over the last several weeks, we are uncovering and analysing and dissecting a teen on-screen classic. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos, and as always, I'm joined by a fella who is such a fuck-ass... And he loves to suck a fuck. It's Cameron James. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here, Alexi. And may I ask, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? Well, I have one question to put unto thee, Cameron, which is, why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? And that's a fair question. And the answer would be, it's my kink. I'm into this shit. (laughs) I dress like this now. Get used to it, dude. (laughs) Well, Cameron, what awoke this kink within you? This kink was awoken by a flick from the year 2001 created by our Lord and Saviour, Richard Kelly. (laughs) The film, of course, is Donald Darko, to use its full Christian name. Yes, we do use the full title in this podcast. That's how much we we respect it. We respect (laughs) this film so much, we will call it Donald Darko. We, Mr. Donald Darko, in fact. <laughs> we are talking about Mr. Donald Darko, the feature film today on the podcast. Yes. Oh, my God. I can't believe we're finally talking about it. I really thought the day would never come. Me too. I really... Too. I never would have believed we'd ever talk about this movie proper. We've we've definitely... It's definitely come up on the podcast mm-hmm. a few times. Maybe, Absolutely. Maybe every third episode. <laughs> Every third episode. I mean, after all, it iconically won the Guinness World Record for world's coolest movie. That's true. It did. It did. We bring it up quite often as an example of, I guess, like gateway cinema, mm-hmm. cool cinema, and yes. uh, and DVD culture. Yeah, because I think, like, for me, it's always been... I've seen this movie as, like, a movie that a young person will find, mm-hmm. and it is the exemplar of like what a gateway film is like someone go there's an opportunity to walk through those gates and then explore cinema further use this as a jumping off point but then a lot of people that watch this movie and love mr donald darko the feature film Mm. would be like man what a sick gate and just stare at the gate and never go through it and you know what i'll do you one better it's not even a gate it's a cellar door wow yeah and that is a gorgeous one of the most gorgeous pairings of words any philosopher or linguistic expert could ever come up with heck even a linguini expert yeah yeah and try as they might you know if you create pasta you know sure you'll make a few fabulous dishes in your time but you'll never make any dish as delish as the phrase cellar door (laughs) 
Gavin, this was one of your choices for this mini series. Yeah. What was it that made you finally go, let's do Donnie Darko? Well, I think uh, I think for a number of reasons. I think I thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if we finally started talking about this movie for mm. real. Because we we usually make fun of it. When we bring up Donnie yeah. Darko, we talk about it in an ironic way about how mm-hmm. it's cool and it's dark and it's gothy and everything. I had a feeling, though, that if we were to talk about it for an hour, we might find something nice to say about it. Yeah. And that feeling comes from the fact that deep down within my core, I truly believe that I love this movie. Wow. Yeah. Have have you always loved it? When did you first see Donald Darko? Well, I first came across Donald Darko um, in high school, probably... I would imagine it would have been year 10 or something like that. So a few years after it's come out, mm-hmm. it's on DVD. And I first, re- I remember hearing about it before I saw it. Mm. It was one of those wow. things that people would say, have you seen Donnie Darko? It's fucked up. Or it's so fucking weird. Pe- it's a mind fuck, It's bitch. a mind fuck. This movie's fucking weird, dude. And then I knew the cover of the DVD with that, like bunny head with that's a mosaic of every cast member's Mm -hmm. face and that kind of grabs you and you're like what is this fucking crazy looking thing yeah emo is sort of back or is like big around that time as well 2004 5 we've got like emo music i know this is a bit gothy i'm seeing it referenced quite a bit i'm drawn to it I watch it with some friends late one night in a downstairs, like a kind of garage downstairs with a TV and some lounges. Oh, Monster Mash style. Monster Mash style. We were, we were working in the lab late one night. <laughs> and my friend said, dude, let's put on Donald Darko and have ourselves a fright. Wow. And we watched it. And I just remember thinking at the time, I'm watching game changing cinema right now. Like, Whoa. I remember being like, "There'll nothing on." This has kicked the cellar door wide open. <laughs> I will never be able to go back to watching normal movies again. This wow. is art. This is crazy. This is tapping into some unspoken emotions that I have as a teenage mm-hmm. boy, uh, involving like angst and hormones and um, my desire to destroy, which is a form of creation. <laughs> And and then I think I, I bought it on DVD. I bought the book. I was obsessed yeah. with the website. I would read essays about it all the time that explained it and explained the time travel philosophies of Roberta <laughs> Flack or whatever her name is. What's her name? Roberta... Uh, Rob- Robert Sparrow. Roberta Robin Sparrow. Roberta Sparrow. <laughs> And uh, I just... Isn't Roberta Flack a singer? Yeah, I wish Roberta <laughs> Flack was in this. <laughs> and I would go... I would went deep. And then I think at a certain point, maybe two years after that, I never watched it again. Yeah. Until this very week. That's so interesting because I, that's exactly what I think of this movie. Yeah. It's your experience. That's what I think of it. Like, that's why we make fun of it. I saw this when I was probably 17. And at this point, I'm, you know, I think part of my luck in this world, and especially in the world of film chitter chatter, Mm. is that, like, I had my annoying film bro phase 
very early in life, when I was like 13 or 14, yeah. and like it's there's no record of it whatsoever apart from some deleted IMDb comments out there. <laughs> so there's no record of me being a film like total film bro. Yeah. And I got to Donnie Darko too late after my film bro right. side. So I got it when I was working the video store. I got that iconic 2004 director's cut of the film on DVD. Yeah. I watched it. I was extremely unimpressed by it. I found it to be tedious, boring. There was no fucking... There was nothing to it for me. I understood it completely. And I'm like, I don't... This does nothing for me. And I always detested this film. And I always thought it was like such like a boring, banal, like piece of cinema. And like, especially like just the way people would go on about it. And like my friends being like, oh, it's such a trip, dude. Like Donnie Darko. I'm like, okay, first call it Donald. Call it Donald, by the way. People going mind fucking around it. I'm like... I, very unimpressive there. I was getting my mind fucked on a regular basis watching the works of Martin Scorsese, okay? Mm. Going through the French New Wave, the Hollywood New Wave, even the Czech freaking New Wave at this point. So Donnie Darko did not, did not cut mind the fuck. mustard oh, for this if one. If Donald Darko was mind fucking you, it's safe to say you did not reach completion. I did, yeah, if it was getting close to mindfucking me, no, I was getting my mind fucked open by some of the biggest dicks in Hollywood at that time, and world cinema, and so I've never had any desire to watch it ever since then. Yeah. Um, meantime, we've decided to do Screen Ages. You picked this movie. I reluctantly said yes to it. Mm-hmm. I watched the movie. I purchased it on Blu-ray recently for very cheap. <laughs> having a feeling that maybe one day the calling would come but we'd cover this movie. And um, I think as well, I'd never, you know, I watched it when I was a teenager. So in my mind, it was just another movie. I never watched it as an idea of it being a teen film. Yeah. I watched it the other day. I absolutely was spellbound. I fell in love with this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, Cameron, I've watched it four times since oh last. I've watched God. it in the last two weeks. I watched the director's cut once and then the theatrical cut three times. Oh my God. I have can't stop watching I it. I can't fucking I, believe this. <laughs> I watched The Box as well. Oh, I watched shit. a movie, uh, the movie Domino, written by Richard Kelly, directed by Tony Scott oh, since then. Oh my God. In the last year as well, like during the lockdown... Uh, me and some friends of ours watched um, Southland Tales. Southland Tales together, and I was like, "Oh, I would always look down on it." But then some, like you know, some listeners of the podcast, they'd been recommending it to me. I'm like, "I'm never going to watch this thing. I'm never going to watch it." We watched it in like our group viewing together over the internet. Blew my mind open. Loved it. Really? So I think I was set up. You know, maybe Donald Darko himself came into my tangent universe put all these things together in place for me to eventually come back to Donnie Darko a decade after first seeing it. And I'm in love with it. I can't stop thinking about Donnie Darko. I can't stop thinking about it. I think about it all the time. I listen to the soundtrack nonstop. Oh my God. This is so funny. This is so I absolutely, funny. I loved it. I loved it, Cameron. Oh, I loved it. shit, dude. That is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't yeah, believe it. It's an it. amazing film. Amazing film. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I, I guess, I guess I want to know what's changed for you, like over the last ten years. What, what have you just become less of a snob, or are you more open to like angsty teen drama than you were when you were seventeen? What's going on? 
I think that's absolutely it. Mm. Like at the time, I also saw the director's cut at the time, and I rewatching them again. Night and day, theatrical cut all the way. Through. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, that... I'm not a director's cut guy. I watched that for the first time this week for this viewing, mm-hmm. and I didn't love it. No, I think the pacing is wrong. It hits you over the head too much yep. with stuff that should be ambiguous, like yep. all the surrealist supernatural stuff. It works so beautifully in the theatrical cut to be like ambiguous. But I think it is now. I have an appreciation for, especially since starting this miniseries, for films for teenagers Absolutely. and films about teenagers. I think you hit the nail on the freaking proverbial head mm. here. That the angst is what really captured me with this one. Yep. It's the moodiness, it's the angst, it's like the Rumblefish Coppola-esque nature of this movie that I think like ratchets it up to truly be like a classic all-time of teen cinema for me. And honestly, I'm swept... I'm in love with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, do you know how many TV I've been telling to... I've been talking to recently? Anyone that has like kind of a dark vibe and aura around them, yeah. I just go like, oh, I watched something darker recently <laughs> oh and just start God. talking to them about it. <laughs> everyone. I've been telling everyone, like, oh, I watched something darker. It's so awesome. What's the vibe out it's... there? Do people have good memories of it or good feelings towards it? I would say it's mixed. There's a lot of people... That, um, like, literally, I've done a survey. I've talked to so many people about this movie the last week. And, like, you know, people that loved it as a teenager, some of them, yeah. like, I talked to some film critics that loved it as a teenager. Mm. Uh, Luke Goodsell from The Monthly, who I've been talking to, mm-hmm. he loved it as a teenager, and he still thinks it, like, holds up completely. He thinks it's a banger. And then some other people, some listeners of the show, um, some other critics, people around, they loved it as a teen, and now they're like, worry doesn't hold up. But, baby, let me tell you, it is freaking awesome. Dude, I agree <laughs> with you. I think it holds up. I think, I think it has more humor in it than I remember when I was a teenager. Yes. And that is the reason that it holds up. It's essentially Absolutely. a satire. It's, you know, a, a satire of suburban America, mm-hmm. of Reaganism, of like consumerist, uh, you know, suburbs um, and, and of private schools and whatnot. It's so fucking funny. And it's yes. sort of like, man, I don't know. Let's dive into it. Let's dive into it. I want to, I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to talk about some interesting shit for this. I think this is going to be a freaking long one, baby. Let's hit it. <laughs> it was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons. Now, in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Tony. Imaginary. I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by these instruments of fear. I haven't seen stuff. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. (laughs) I have to obey him. He saved my life. Have you ever seen a portal? Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? 
All right, it is time for our favorite recently renamed segment that we like to call Love That Logline. Cameron, you found a summary of this movie, a synopsis. Mm-hmm. What's the logline say, baby? And do we love it? I found this uh, this logline on goingtothestory.blacklist.com. <laughs> <laughs> I love pu- multiple punctuation in a website. <laughs> Already, uh, we love the logline, darling. Uh, Let yeah, me say that. This is by Scott Myers. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, and the logline is... A troubled teenager is plagued by visions of a large bunny rabbit that manipulates him to commit a series of crimes after narrow after narrowly escaping a bizarre incident. I like that. And I like that this logline doesn't tell you what the bizarre incident is. <laughs> I think that is bold, brave, and courageous from Scotty Myers. Yeah. Who, by the way, I reckon like us, is an Austin fan. He takes the surname from Mr. Myers. Yep, yep, yep. Mike himself and Scotty don't, but Scotty does yeah, in this Scotty case. Do. Scotty do. Scotty Evil has come into the fold. Scotty fault. good. Scotty come good. Scotty Evil and come good. <laughs> I would um I would probably if I was trying to sell this to people, um I would probably add a boy narrowly escapes his death in there cuz that's kind of an exciting mm. inciting incident for this. And also, you'd probably begin like, bang, a plane crashes into a house. Yeah, holy shit, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> now that I've got your attention. No, actually, let's start with sex, all capitals. And then, now that I've got your attention, a young boy narrowly escapes his death. <laughs> um, yes, very cool. All right, let's dive into it. I want to talk about the opening sequence first, because as I pop this on for the first time in probably, you know, like, a decade or more for me, the opening imagery of a teenage boy seemingly dead in the middle of a road, just laying on the ground in the middle of the road with his bike next to him. And then he wakes up and he sort of has this euphoric look on his face and then begins the ride into the suburbs. For the first time ever, I put it together in my head like, shit, this is an homage to Spielberg in many ways. Mm. This is like a a teenage boy on a bike riding through bush into the suburbs. That's fucking E.T. all over it. Absolutely. And and then you immediately, all right, so it's E.T. I'm thinking, okay, they're throwing in sort of like some Spielberg-y homages here. The soundtrack is uh, Killing Moon which is a Brat Pack era goth rock mm-hmm. song. So we've got the John Hughes element coming in there. And yeah. then when we reach the suburban home, <laughs> the mother is laying, reclining outside, drinking a wine at presumably nine in the morning and reading It by Stephen King. Seeing all those things come together for me, John Hughes, Spielberg, Stephen King, I immediately understood this film. And I, I, I texted you right away saying, I think we don't give this movie enough credit for how much it changed pop culture mm. for the good and, and for the bad in many reasons. But I would, I would say this has ushered in that whole Duffer Brothers, Stranger Things, It Follows, like 80s goth renaissance. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I love to say this about a movie, and especially a movie none other than Mr. Donald Darko itself. Mm. This movie was about a decade ahead of its time. Definitely. Definitely. 
if this movie came out in like 2010, 2011, it would have been, it would have been fucking, people would have been loving this shit for it. We, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it still does. It still is loved. I think yeah. I would say that without this movie, the Duffer brothers wouldn't have the blueprint for the world they created in Stranger Things, which is that mm. combination of all those elements. Absolutely. From the 80s. I think what hit me as well, like once you said that Spielberg thing, that really unlocked it for me in like understanding like what this movie is doing. And I think it's like, like you were saying earlier, it's those satirical elements that really bubbled up for me on this viewing. Like, there's so much about, like, his parents are, like, Reaganists. Like, they mm-hmm. love Reagan. They're watching Dukakis on TV, yeah. who was a hopeful in replacing uh, in, in the Democratic hopeful up against George H.W. Bush. Mm. And also, rest in peace to his cousin, Olympia Dukakis, yes. icon of Greek-American cinema, passed away this yep. week. They were cousins. They are deeply beloved in Greek culture worldwide olympia zoisa sas very beautiful um, very beautifully put i'm i know i am crying but allow me to work through my emotions yes um <laughs> but uh i think it was like the satirical element of that and like understanding it now through the lens of like so much of like john hughes cinema being mm. like in this secretly reaganistic capitalist american ideals of like what suburbia is and then seeing this movie coming so far after that but still being about a young person who was you know just a little bit too young for this era dealing with like the ramifications of that dealing with the feelings of that and like embodying them in donnie darko it's so interesting right it's like what if it's like what if ferris bueller had bipolar essentially he's like lives in this reaganistic dream suburb um and he is fucked in the head and he hates it (laughs) he hates that no one understands him and takes him no one takes his mental illness seriously and I think that's the brilliant thing about this movie, what I was able to connect with this time, is that idea of this person is like an intellectual, pseudo or otherwise, mm. Donald Darko is an intellectual, sensitive, and kind of angsty, emotional teenager, yeah. even though he is quite cold, um, who is very pop culture literate and very thoughtful about the Smurfs, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, he is the only one who sees the world for how it really is. Mm. And is there anything more potent in that angst-riddled teenage mind that everyone else is a freaking idiot and doesn't get it and i'm the only one that sees the world for how it really is i'm gonna throw two words at you i don't know if you're familiar with them but the words are holden caulfield the lead character from catcher in the rye who calls everyone phonies that's his famous catchphrase that he calls every adult a phony every other teenager a phony sir donald darko from the feature film mr donald darko is exactly that. He's a guy who looks around and sees the bullshit. And yeah, it's a bit lame. Like when you're an adult, I'm 33 and I'm watching this 17 year old kid calling bullshit. And I'm, and I'm like cheering in my living room. Like, yeah, it is cool that you (laughs) called Patrick Swayze, the antichrist. And yeah, Mm. fuck yeah. Destroy the school, man. But there is, there is something undeniable that it does tap into you on a primal level when you watch someone, just kick back against any system. It's so fucking yes. exciting to watch. Absolutely. And I think like what has helped me so much in like finally embracing my ultimate destiny as being one of the mm. great 
proponents for Donald Darko culture mm. out there mm. now is us going on this journey through this uh, to fully understand like what teen films are and how they work for me and what I like about them uh, has led me to like see Donnie Darko in this new light as also understanding like why it works and why teens like it because I think part of this movie's problem for me back then and now part of like why I like it now is like the heightened the heightened world of a teen movie I think that works really well here and I think the dark humor also really helps to elevate this movie but I also think the pretentiousness of this film yeah. is now a feature that I greatly admire. And I think it wouldn't be the same if I hadn't like had this reawakening with Rumblefish recently mm. on this series as well. Like understand like this idea of an art film, like art speaking to teenagers yeah. and like how teens can interpret art. They have to be bold. They have to be big. The symbolism has to be rife and huge and obvious. And I think that there's so much like, that is the reason why teenagers connect to this because I think teen art films, they should be really pretentious like this. Yep. They should be talking about these big ideas and overcomplicating them in some areas and oversimplifying them in some others. And I did read this thing, like when this script was going around, um, that they were passing it around to other to directors and stuff. And one of the directors that Mr. Richard Kelly spoke to who was perhaps interested in directing? I know, it. There I know was what you're no going to say. Yeah, was Mr. Francis Ford Coppola himself? Yeah, Coppola loved it, and apparently Coppola gave a very guiding note to the story too. There's a part in the movie I think where um, someone, maybe it's Drew Barrymore's character, someone says like, like, oh, these kids are just like trying to f figure shit out for themselves. Like, that no, no adults are helping these kids. They're trying to figure the world out for themselves. Apparently Coppola circled that line in the script and was like, that's what your movie's about. It's about kids feeling like they're left alone by adults at all times and wishing they had some guidance. And the universe literally becomes the fucking parent that guides Donald through it. You know, he has no I, one. It, it fucking, the world has to get supernatural for him to get some guidance. Yeah. And I think like that's such a good Coppola tell. Coppola is so good at just going like, this movie is about one word and it's the one thing. Yep. And I think he can always boil, he's so good at boiling it down to that one thing. And I think like, that's really what this movie is. Like draws young people to it. It's this dark surrealist meta take on language that they're accustomed to and a feeling that they are feeling. Mm. I think that is the magic of Donald's Darko. <laughs> I'm so happy that you like it. It's so funny to me. I love it. I absolutely adore it. <laughs> what did you think of um, young Jake Gyllenhaal in this film? I, I kind of, you know, you forget that he's a child actor, that he really did start mm. when he was very little. Because he's been around for longer than we've really been aware about movies. Mm. But, but this was his breakout role, I guess. Um, and when I watch it now, I don't know how old he was. He would have been fucking, what, 19, 18? I guess so, yeah. He's fully formed, man. He's like... Absolutely. He, there's no... There's nothing cringy about him as a performer in this role. Mm. And he has to do some big, silly shit. Like, he talks some to himself. Voices. He does weird voices. Um, he like has to look stupid. He has to like jack off at one point. 
but mm-hmm. he he looks like a fucking slick professional performer already, a comfortable performer. One thing about him in this movie is like he is Jake Gyllenhaal is amazing. He is a fantastic actor. Mm. He is also, I believe on the cusp of, like, being a wonderful movie star as well. But he chooses really interesting work that kind of, like, forbids him from being, like, top-tier A-lister movie star. Because the only, like, proper, like, big action blockbuster-type movie he's really ever done, off the top of my head, is The Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Yeah, I mean, he's... Mis- by he's Mike Newell. Mysterio in um, Spider-Man Far From Home Oh, as well. of course. Yeah, he's been, so, he has had a couple of... And he's in The Day After Tomorrow and shit. Like, he's, yeah. he's had some big things, but he always steps away, does theatre, does smaller mm-hmm. projects. But his success is being, like, uh, an incredible lead of independent and interesting cinema. Like, the stuff he's done with Denis Villeneuve, uh, the stuff that he's done, I mean, with Ang Lee on, like, Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. That's one of, like, the best, like modern day performances in my opinion uh he has done really interesting courageous work in independent films and then also done really interesting and courageous work i would say as a supporting character in really weird esoteric roles like okja where he plays like mm. that that whatever he's doing yeah. in okja i adore yeah. what he's doing yeah. in like the john mulaney sack lunch bunch uh, yeah. like yeah. when he like kind of feels <laughs> like the freakiness of like a comedic character yeah. It's so in contrast to like, but it's always, always there. Like he's quite weird and funny in Zodiac as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bubble Boy was my introduction to Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> That's a movie I've been trying to get you to do yeah, on the podcast know, forever. And you refuse to. I can't do it. <laughs> uh, you know what? Maybe I'll, since you did Donnie Darko, maybe I'll do Bubble Boy. That's fair. <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll do, we'll sneak it in somewhere. That's but, fair. I think as well, watching him in this movie and seeing like how young he is and how at the start of his career is, it feels like a blueprint for the rest of his career. Big time. But also, he feels like he's so in control and knows what his body looks like on screen. Mm. And by that, I mean like the way that he interprets the character physically. Like he knows so well like how his face is going to contort in a certain way. Mm. Like a certain way to like look near the camera or look away from it. The way that he embodies a character on screen feels so mature for, I mean, for a teen movie, you know, like for, and for a young person, it is like really splendid work the way he's able to embody this multifaceted character and like the darkness surrounding it, but also like the goofy, funny teen moments. It is it is crazy how fully formed he is. And there's proper movie stars in this film. Drew Barrymore, who's a producer, is also mm-hmm. a supporting player. Patrick Swayze, who was the yeah. 80s movie star is a bona fide movie star and you know he has a small turn in this as well but i think they're all overshadowed by gyllenhaal in this man he's it's a when you watch it i remember a few years ago when people raved about nightcrawler like you can't believe how crazy he is in this he plays such a twisted you know character and it's like yeah man he's been doing it forever like since he was fucking 15 yeah, since freaking Bubble Boy, since, dude, he's been doing since it. Since City Slickers, dude. Since he played <laughs> one of the kids in that. He's been twisted <laughs> as fuck. As well, I'll tell you when I locked in and loved this movie, where I was like, it's also a big teen moment, hmm. um, is where he like gets sent to his room 
and he has like a, a small argument with his mom mm. where he's just really like hyped on his like own like hormonal like yeah. teen energy yeah. and then she leaves the mm. room and he's like bitch yeah and she hears him say it and she like kind of laughs it off with the daddy that she's like hurt by it but i was like that's such a real feeling totally. of like angst as a teen like yeah, there's so many times where i like yelled at my mom or like cl- she closed the door and i'm just like flipping the birds yeah, off at the door like screaming door. Yeah, yeah. like screeching <laughs> at myself yeah <laughs> and i just like i got that like that's like the vibe of this movie and i think there's so much of that the humor of this movie is like like what makes it work is like yeah this movie is donnie darko it's like what the experience of donnie darko is it's a gothy emo teen movie yeah but then all the teen moments are so good at undercutting like the existentialness of the entire rest of the experience i know it is it's fucking funny man like the whole uh it's very early on in the film where the family are having a dinner and, and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and Jake Gyllenhaal have that argument where they tell e- call each other a fuck-ass and shit like mm-hmm. that. That's hilarious. And also, by and the way... Always... S. Darko has to have her yeah, ears covered Yeah, S. Darko has to cover her ears. <laughs> and uh, I, I reckon it's fair to say that the Gyllenhaal siblings, um, they, have, they have that real... Like, when do you ever see that chemistry... You see it when the Cusacks yeah. share the screen. Yes. It's very rare. I think these guys are like the 90s Cusacks. Oh, that's so good, dude. Or early 2000s. Early 2000s I think Maggie, Cusacks, man, yeah. This is her first film, and I think that part of it is the Cusack is so good because both of the Cusacks have such different energy, yeah. as do the Gyllenhaals. I think Maggie is like amazing, naturalistic, grounded actor. Oh, I'm like, she's just doing real shit. Yeah, she's so good. And then Jake is doing bonkers stuff and they are able to like level each other out and their dynamic is so freaking exciting in this movie. That dinner table scene, I could live in it. Yeah, it's so good. It's such a funny choice too for, uh, you know, uh, what is essentially quite a serious dark film to have moments of pure comedy like that. Mm-hmm. Like Sucker Fuck has entered the vernacular. I think people still yeah. say it. Yeah, of course. Because it's funny and like, and you know, like fuck all the Patrick Swayze shit. There's so many funny moments in this that could exist in like a, a, an era appropriate comedy, even like a Wes mm. Anderson, like Rushmore type film or oh, yeah. whatever, you know. Like, I think the infomercials of, like, Patrick Swayze, like, that infomercial vibe of, like, that self-help mm. stuff, those videotapes, those VHSs, those were the first things they shot. So, Richard Kelly's, like, a 24-year-old filmmaker, and that's, like, their first mission. They've got, like, a day mm. to do these. They go out to Patrick Swayze's actual ranch, like, his farmhouse, to, like, shoot these there, and his wife goes in and finds all his old outfits from the 80s and goes, I reckon you should wear this one and bring them all out. <laughs> So he's like wearing his actual 80s clothes to do it. And um, I think they like were able to like capture it feeling very genuine. It feeling like like a real pit, like time capsule of what these things are. But it like totally captures like the humor and vibe of what this whole movie's going for. Which is like really surprised me. It was the first thing they shot. They mm. showed it to the rest of the cast, to Drew Barrymore and everyone, like the producers. And like they all had full confidence that like Richard Kelly knew what he was doing when he was making this movie. It reminds me of um, Paul Thomas Anderson, who was also around this age when he made his first film. Mm-hmm. And 
there's a real like juvenile sense of humor that comes right up against this like a like old like a deep dark spiritual existentialism like side by side to have mm. dick jokes sucker fuck jokes and like infomercial like shitty infomercial parody jutting right up against why are we here what is the nature of existence um and you know fate and destiny and death and suicide messiah <laughs> like yeah. having those two side by side feels like it could only be made by a 24 year old because when you yes. when you look at boogie nights it's the same shit there's like funny jokes about the 70s and bad music right up against like what is family what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I a real man? It's that's that's yeah. a twenty four year old's way of thinking. And I think a lot of it is like it feels like a late night TV. Like you're flicking around the channels in a way. Mm. Like you're going to find dark stuff. Those are the feelings that you yourself, as a young person, are going to have when you're staying late up night and you're like watching TV. You're going to see the weird stuff, like the infomercials. You're going to be watching like freaking cartoons, like the Smurfs. So it's going to be infused with popular culture. Mm. And I think it like it captures like that angsty feeling in such a good way. I also think like I keep bringing up that Smurfs like interlude that they have where they talk about like how Smurfette is like gang bang. That's the most dated Smurfs. part of the movie to me. It's the most really um, it it's is. the most like Tarantino esque dialogue moment for me. Oh, it's such like of that era where like everyone like Christopher McQuarrie and stuff are doing all that like pop culture talking about stuff. I just watched um Crimson Tide oh, yeah. and Tarantino did a pass on that film. Mm. And like the best thing that he put in is like this whole like monologue and conversation about the silver surfer. <laughs> and this feels like so much like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We talk about pop culture, but we're dudes talking about pop culture. Okay. K Smith. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh my God. So tell me a bit about this era in cinema, 2001. You know, mm -hmm. we, we talk a little bit about this era quite a bit because it's, you know, classic teenage era for us. But like, um, what was going This was an era of, am I correct in thinking like Memento, Matrix, like the Matrix sequels, Magnolia, yeah. like sort of fuck, head fucky sort of movies? I think we're, like, in the crux of, like, this genre cycle that kind of would be known as, like, complex narrative films where, like, it doesn't unfold linearly, perhaps. Mm. It's got layers to it. Um, like, it's kind of like this complex narrative structure is what it goes for. But, like, what that really means is, like, mindfuck movies. Right. I think we're, like... 2001 it's like right smack bang the middle in like mindfuck movie era mm. or maybe to the apex of it all if anything because we've got matrix at the turn of the millennium yeah you've got memento in 2000 you've got fight club mm. like all of those films that are like about these anxieties that people are having uh like confronting the 21st century and like technology or like new philosophies about life new existentialism yeah. and i think it's also Gen X people and, you know, slightly older millennial, uh, that generation confronting existentialism in this new age and, like, beginning to understand it. So I think, like, art is, like, having this big response to that at that point in time. 
especially in cinema, but everywhere across the board, like books, so much books are like dealing with this stuff as well. Yeah, mind fuck cinema. It's such a funny... I mean, I was the right age to be into this shit. I just fucking loved it. You know, I just thought all that... You know, I loved Fincher. I loved Kaufman. I loved this movie. I thought I loved Memento so much. I used to always just talk about like, yeah, this is like real movies. This is like the kind of shit that adults get into. And then... Eventually, you do kind of grow out of it, but it is, it's fun to return to it and look at what has lasted the test of time. And, uh, you know, this one surprisingly did for me. I don't know. I don't know why. I haven't quite nailed down what it is about it, but I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, I think it's wanky and I think it's very pretentious and there's parts of it that I was heavily rolling my eyes at. But there's also just a fun feeling about watching something that you don't quite understand, but there's enough little ropes for you to grab onto and be like, oh, fuck, she, you know, time, or maybe, you know, we, there's, there is a purpose to life and there is a path that we're all on, but what if you can divert away from it and all that shit? I think it's that idea of free will. It's kind of like that first, uh, like, philosophical idea or thought that I think young people have is like what is predetermined what is not what is destiny can we go stray from like the path of destiny because it's the first time that like young people they're about to be set out into the world of the world that like in the wild by yeah. themselves yeah. like you know they're leaving high school they're starting to see their days no longer have that structure mm. like they're looking at a world without that predetermined structure around them so i think philosophically they are looking at those ideas of free will that donnie darko does talk about those ideas of being able to change parts and create tangent universes like what those are it's just like the philosophical extrapolation of the ideas that those people feel all the time it's like so what true. is their path because it's young people looking at their future they have to determine what their own path mm. is and that is so all-encompassing and it's so scary like you know that's why young people have those feelings of angst of anxiety because their whole life is ahead of them and they have almost no control around it god that's so true Fuck, yeah, maybe that's why this has lasted more than, say, like, the butterfly effect or something like that. Because mm. it, it is about, it's a very literal version of those teen feelings. It's not mm -hmm. just weird for the sake of being weird or philosophical for the sake of being philosophical. It's, you know, it's what we like about It Follows. Like, it kind of literalizes a metaphor in a way. Yeah, exactly. It's that's what I'm trying to say. Like it, it, it speaks to teens in a very simple language that they're already accustomed to, but in a new way, yeah. in very overt, symbolic ways. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I kind of looked up like Richard Kelly talking about it in these documentaries and stuff as well. Like, why the bunny rabbit? Like, why is Frank? Yeah, like, I in always this weird wondered if it was suit? like a reference to Harvey or something like that. He had no reason why, but I think that's why it lasts is because it does feel like Harvey, right? The mm. 1950s James Stewart has an imaginary friend who is a giant rabbit that you don't really see. Yeah. And I think that is why it kind of like, 
it, it works so well because it's already been done. We know that mm. people out there in the world have imaginary friends and they already happen to be rabbits. Like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is also like this, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think like it captures that, that anthropomorphic nature of it and then having a weird fucked up head on it yeah. is real cool. It is real cool. I remember the first time uh, I saw the movie, the moment that you see Frank, not... Not the bunny rabbit, but the guy step yes. out of the car at towards the end of the movie at the beginning of the third act. My mind was blown. I remember just thinking like, oh my God, this is a real person who has like somehow been caught up in this time vortex and they're trying to mm. undo a mistake that they did or whatever the fuck. All right. Yeah. I was very into it at that time. But, and yeah. I always thought the bunny was stupid and maybe part of the reason why we've made fun of it is to do with the bunny as well. Yes. But it is fucking striking to look at. And mm-hmm. and sometimes you just can't argue with a strong striking image. Like it's the reason it's the whole reason David Lynch has a career is that he just picks yeah. images that are quite silly but they stay with you because they're a bit creepy. <laughs> Exactly. And I think it being aimed at young people, that's what it needs to be. It can't be anything too overt or too, sorry, it can't be anything too steps removed. It Mm. has to be that first step, has to be that first idea to like really capture like what it is and why they're going to connect to it. Yeah. Oh my God, man. I'm I'm amazed that uh, you like this movie as much as you do. Um, it might be one of my favorite movies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it really God. might be. Like I, I'm so on board with it that I could talk about it forever. Like I don't know if there's other movies that I want to talk about anymore. It might be. I might become a Donnie Darko guy. <laughs> there's a moment in this movie where they have the party, the Halloween party, at their house mm-hmm. while their parents are away where I I remembered that I dressed as Donnie Darko at Halloween one year. I'd totally forgotten it, but I went and bought like a skeleton costume, like what he has. And I specifically went and bought like a cheap cotton on gray hoodie to wear as Mm -hmm. well. And I went to a party as that look that Donnie Darko rocks at the Halloween party. I mean, I think it's a really cool look. It is a cool look. I thought about it like, yeah, next time I do a costume party, I might just buy this. It's a fucking cool look. Also, this like every look in this movie is cool. It's a, just a beautiful looking and costumed movie. Yeah, this is a uh, costume designer, April Ferry, mm. who uh, is quite an icon, especially known for like, put like finding costumes and stuff. But incredibly diverse career. Donnie Darko is a highlight. She also did Maverick. She mm. did the HBO series Rome. She mm. did Elysium not too long ago. But um oh Game of Thrones. She's oh done like God. lots of different stuff, like all around it. But she's also did stuff like the Big Chill. And mm. so a lot of the costumes, like even costumes that Donnie Darko's mum wears, are like stuff that Glenn Close literally wore in the Big Chill, which is of course <laughs> like totally like the the like the freaking touchstone of like boomer movies. Yeah, it's like yeah. a movie that celebrates boomerism and like the the boomers that would go on to become Reaganists and stuff. So it's like she's so perfect to get for this. Yeah. But then also has like genius ideas of like 
this is something we haven't encountered because we've been doing American movies on this like teen series. You didn't talk about you know, the school uniform. They're wearing school uniforms. I just fucking love that because it you never see that in American teen cinema. You always see casual, all. like wear whatever the fuck you want in this shit. To see like mm-hmm. a school, it looks like Catholic school. I don't know if it is. Yeah. But to see so, that reminds me of my childhood. Oh, it's exactly what my school uniform was, which is like navy pants, white shirt. Mm. And watching this, I realized the way, because I went to a public school. So we had the uniform and it was in force, but you could like, you know, muck around with it. Mm. And I realized I dressed exactly like Donnie Darko because I would wear like navy pants, my, my school shirt, white t-shirt underneath, black Adidas sneakers because I didn't want to wear like black yeah. like leather shoes. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I wore. <laughs> but like that was her idea to go, well, I can save us so much money if we just give them a uniform. That way every kid on screen is wearing the exact same costume. I can buy them in bulk. We can reuse them and style them in different ways. Uh, but it also like adds so much to like the thematic idea of this film that like yeah. Donnie Darko sees the world in a different way to everyone else. And everyone else has like this sense of like conformity about mm. them. Everyone has conformed to like the ideas of suburbia, the ideas of being like this kind of like one corporate entity in some kind of way as well. And he is able to stand out amongst them. That's a great combination of art meeting commerce right there like a Mm. a decision being made to save money that also adds to the entire like ethos and vibe of the movie i can't imagine what this movie would be like if they didn't have a school uniform it feels like that's part of what the story is this is a kid that's just sick of being in this fucking world absolutely right oh my god like i think that this film is like such a convergence of like talented people i I can't believe how i'm talking about donaka i just heard myself (laughs) in my headphones going like oh it's such a convergence of talented people coming together to make donnie freaking darko i'm lost it i'm the i'm the guy i i can't believe it i'm a donnie darko guy guy. become the guy i'm the guy talking on a podcast irreverent really about freaking donnie darko with severe reverence yeah i know you're fucked dude Oh my god, we can't release this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we can't release it. Oh my god, that's so funny. But also, like the person that sh- uh, the DOP of this movie, if you look them up, they don't have too many big credits, but they are like an actual like veteran of the industry. Stephen Poster, mm. he was the head of the American Cinematographers Guild. Um, he, so he is very prestigious, but also he's done second unit on some really, really big and important works. He was second unit on a movie that's referenced a lot throughout this film, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was, uh, he founded a production company with Michael Mann as well, but also he, uh, he, mainly is really known as like a big ad guy. Like he did all the big Ridley Scott ads as well. And so he was kind of like a big gun and a big get for this movie who was kind of a bit mentoring without ever taking over the movie and mentoring collaboration uh, of someone coming with immense experience, helping uh, Richard Kelly bring his vision to the screen. 
Mm. And like a lot of that, there's discussions between them about like how they would do that first scene, uh, like that first montage where we enter the school for the first time. We have that Tears for Fears song, and Richard Kelly always saw that as like a one-up, and he's just like, we can't do it as a one-up. There's no way this can be a one take, but I'll walk it through with you so we can find it. And then they do, and Richard Kelly's like, you're right, it can't be that. And so it's like it sounds like a really interesting collaboration. They've done all their movies together since then. And, um, man, I do love that montage. Yeah, me too. I think too. this movie has such, like, a great use of, like, that sensitive, maybe just the tail end of, like, 80s new wave stuff. Mm. And I think it's a really good, like, mixtape example of, like, what a cunny, like, Donnie Darker would actually be listening to. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, the music in this is fucking great I, I remember at the time this was my first introduction to joy division love will tear us apart and then yeah and then they joy division had a real renaissance not long after this people started fucking loving them again and i was definitely caught up in that um Big time, yes. echo and the bunny man i fucking adore mm-hmm. i love the church under the milky way oh, oh my god what a fucking i love great the use song. of that song oh it's amazing great song you also get in excess in the director's cut. You get uh, a lot of Duran Duran and Tears for Fears. I mean, it's just a fucking great, a great soundtrack. But that uh, that ending song is the one that everyone kind of knows. The Mad World cover, Tears for Fears, uh, covered by Gary Jules. I had a theory that I think will be disproved very easily that this ending, which is sort of like floating camera going across the faces of all the supporting and main cast while Donnie is tragically passing away. Mm -hmm. He's being crushed. He's being crushed to death in slow motion by a jet engine. (laughs) (laughs) Or, sorry, sorry, an interesting incident. Yes. Um, (laughs) A foreign object has entered his realm. Uh, I had this theory that that montage of everyone's faces while they don't know what they're feeling, but they know they're experiencing some strange loss or strange sensation Mm. while Mad World plays, is the beginning of what would become a mainstay of the HBO drama final minutes of a series. Every every episode from of like the Sopranos of fucking Mm -hmm. the Y, everything shows a montage of what everyone is up to while the song plays. Now this could be easily disproven if Six Feet Under came out before Donnie Darko came out <laughs> because I think Six Feet Under really kicked that off in a huge way. But this feels like it's a part of that movement, that whole like... Absolutely. Look, we're wrapping the story up in a subtle, vaguely emotional way and we have a somewhat ironic song underscoring that exact moment. I just looked it up. Six Feet Under comes out in June 2001. So they are brothers and sisters, I would say, Donnie Darko and Six Feet Under. They're doing the same things. But I think it is all in what you're saying in that idea of, like, that complex narrative structure intersecting with, like, another generic cycle in cinema that's happening at the same time, which is hyperlink cinema that you and I have been talking about as an idea for a future miniseries, Mm. which is... Uh, connected, loosely or otherwise connected stories uh, and separate stories coming together to find something at the end. And I think that those are two things that 
really strike each other at this point in time. And I think it just becomes like a mode of wrapping up stories that people understand when it comes mm. to film and find emotionally resonant. Yeah. Is to like have this like feeling of like what everyone is doing together and having all those ideas tied up in some way, whether they actually are or this type of montage gives you the guise that they are being tied up. Yeah, it's it works. It's cheesy. We've seen it done a mm-hmm. million times ever since, but it still works for me just to hear a sad song playing while every, we see what everyone is doing at the same moment. <laughs> yeah, and the song is put together by a music producer who was he, their feature composing debut is Donnie Darko, Michael Andrews. Mm. And I think like the actual score for this movie as well is so interesting because it moves away from like the kind of like uh, the new wavy stuff, like the Joy Division stuff. It still has those feelings, but there's almost like an industrial nature to them as well Mm. that helps like ratchet up the tension the way that like the mixtape music doesn't do Mm. and michael andrews talked about like coming together with that mad world cover uh being inspired by like his composing heroes ennio morricone and uh john barry who would often like also compose a song to be on the soundtrack Mm. as well like you know obviously john barry with james bond and stuff but ennio morricone like you know the django theme songs like where they'd be like singing and stuff in them so i think it's like it works so well, and that piano cover of Mad World mm. has, like, had a fucking life of its yeah, own. Yeah, man, yeah. It really has. Abs- like, man, I think about it all the time. And, it's like, coming back funny... and going, like, oh, it's from Donnie Darko? Yeah, and, it, and it, it, it is really nice in Donnie Darko. Like, it works really nice. But in any other use, I fucking detest it. Mm-hmm. I find it so maudlin and gross. But yeah. I love it in the final moments of this film. And it's like that idea of like something that you're familiar with. Uh, it's also like it's so Donnie Darko because people are like, well, did you ever notice the lyrics to Madwell are quite sad? Like, yeah, fucking every new yeah. wave song is yeah. sad. Yeah. They're weirdos. They're pale, sad weirdos. Everything they do is sad, but they sing it funny and stuff. Yeah. Like, that's what they do. <laughs> but like, yeah, if you slow it down, it's if you find out that's sad. I'm like. Yeah, okay, Donnie Darko, that's exactly what you should be doing. You should, it's 14, you've got to do that shit. Oh, God, that's so good. Uh, you know what? I reckon we should give some awards out because there's there's one in particular that I think you and I are both very excited uh, to hand out. We like to give out some Oscars on this podcast. One of our favorite Oscars is the Best Character Actor Oscar an award that we would give out to someone who will probably never see, never feel the weight of an Academy Award in their hand. Or someone that would probably never even be mentioned in a podcast, ever. And honestly, this might be the pinnacle of us giving away a character actor award, because the person we're going to give it to today, I believe, is a shining exemplar to what a character actor even is. Yeah, yeah. This, and how would you define a character actor, by the way? Like, what what would you say? I would say someone that is a working actor that appears in lots of supporting roles, bringing out the supporting cast, and often they are very much cast to a type. They do a certain thing like nobody's business. Like, they 
capture an essence of something. So they are a shorthand in some way, even just casting them. They're a recognizable face, but they do not have a name that anyone would be able to utter. You and I are possibly the only people on the planet that know all of their names somehow. Mm-hmm. We just love these Absolutely. people. We fucking adore them. We love the Richard Kinds of the world, you know. Yes, we love your James Rehorn, who always <laughs> plays an expert witness on the character's yes. stand. Yes, we love this shit. And this actor is absolutely one of those people that you would see in a million things and every time you'd be like oh that lady oh she's in this i love her the lady that we are talking about is of course the wonderful beth grant and who does she play in donnie darko beth grant plays kitty farmer in donnie darko who is the head of sparkle motion the Mm -hmm. dance troupe that the children are in she is like a PTA member. She always plays this type of person in a film or in TV. She's a she is a busybody. She's a busybody. She's, busy She's body. like a conservative, usually a religious, yeah, religious conservative, conservative as well. Who is who is frustrated at a town hall meeting or a PTA <laughs> meeting? <laughs> yeah, and who wants something to change within the community. Yes, that's exactly. She's like a, or she's, stay the same. She's, a, she's yeah, fighting against. She's something. a Helen Lovejoy type. Absolutely, and she is so funny. Yeah, like she's been in so many like classic movies. I think this is a big shining moment for her. This film, oh, big but she's time. in big. Rain Man. She's in Little Miss Sunshine as a pageant official. Yeah, she's in uh, Flatliners. She's in heaps of TV she's series in, like The Bride. Full of no stuff. Country for Old Men. Little Miss Sunshine, Crazy Heart, Matchstick Men. She's been. She's in Speed. She's in Speed. She's in the Mindy Project, The Office, Criminal. She's in Two Wong Fu. Yes, she plays a similar thing in Two Wong Fu, of course. My name is Earl. Pushing Daisies. I just Mm -hmm. watched her in Justified a few weeks ago. She's just been in everything, and it's always a joy whenever she pops up. But for me, I think a large part of the reason that it's a joy is because I know her from this movie. This might've been the first Mm. thing that I really became aware of her in. And she's iconic in this movie. She is so freaking funny in this movie. Yeah. And it's such like a perfectly calibrated character actor performance. And it's a little bit more substantial than like a a role that like a Beth Grant usually gets. Because usually this is just a character that pops up as an antagonist in a scene or two maybe. But she's like probably the lead antagonist of this movie. Like representing... A professional professional stick in the mud. That's what this woman is. And, like, there's so much, like, joy in, like, just watching her, like, act in this film. And even moments, like, in those montages where you're seeing her, like, meet the Noah Wiley character, meet the Mm. um, Drew Barrymore character and introducing them around. And you're just silent. You can see her face just kind of like, oh, well, these are the kids. This is the new generation of teachers that are quite progressive, that are moving things around. She has, like, this scornful yet still smiley look in her face, like, as she's going about them. But the highlight of the entire movie for me is she's, like, (laughs) teaching this class using, like, the Patrick Swayze um, method of, like, self-help betterment and stuff. And um, she uh, there's a scene where Donnie Darko basically builds up and it cuts to 
where he's going to tell her to shove it up her ass, like in a it confrontation. Cuts off. The scene cuts away right before he says that. It's actually a really funny comedy beat, I think. It's huge. It's so funny. Like, it's like, so I, I could, it's so, such good comedy when they do it. And yeah. then it cuts to a meeting with Donnie Darko, the principal, and Donnie Darko's parents. What exactly did you say to Ms. Farmer? And then it cuts to a wide or zooms out to a wide and you see Beth Grant's in the room. He's like, I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh my God. She's so good. She plays that type so well. So much so that like, I don't know how you could cast anyone else in Hollywood. Why would you? Like, we need someone to be just like a harried like religious annoyed mm-hmm. person like she comes to mind first yeah she also gets the other great line of the movie which has become it it's like it's almost like high camp mm. um like catchphrase which is when she's had to pull out of taking the sparkle motion dance troupe to <laughs> california and so she asks mrs darko to do it and she's like basically crying on the Darko's front doorstep and she says to Mrs. Darko, This has been a dream of Samantha's and, and all of ours for a long time. I made her lead dancer. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Which has become like people, there's gifts of it all the time. People fucking say it. It's like a camp catchphrase for like showbiz essentially mm. in many ways it's it, she's so funny she deli- and she delivers it all They're, these are comedy lines but i feel the emotion every time she does it like she fucking she's in it she's in it she's absolutely in it she deserves the oscar and i pray to god one day a director gives her a meaty role mm-hmm. you know she's in no country for old men she could kill it in a coen brothers movie as yeah. just like as a lead, you know, as a Frances McDormand type. Give her, yeah. give her her day in the sun, boys. Or even something like this again, where you just give a character actor opportunity to be a fully formed, like, supporting role mm. like this. Mm. I think Beth Grant is, like, so capable of just being able to, like, rip something apart. And she does a lot of it in, like, indie films. But yeah. I really think that she is, like, seeing her in this again... Man, it made me so happy. I just adore Beth Grant. Me too. I actually just saw it in the trailer for um, that new Nick Cage movie, Willy's Wonderland, that I keep oh seeing ads for. Oh my gosh. She's the sheriff in that. So she's she features <gasps> pretty heavily in the trailer. It looks like she's got a pretty meaty role. Um, yeah, she's a fucking blast. Once you see Beth Grant, once you know her name, yep. you will see her in so many movies and mm. you will become delighted by her presence even more so than you already are yeah you'll stand her you will so the Oscar goes to you beth grant and it was stiff competition in a movie like this yeah where there's a lot of parents and supporting character roles mm-hmm. you could have even given it to a noel wiley make an totally. argument that he's a tv star yep. and in a movie this is the only thing he ever really does but not uh, no, 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 he does the Librarian franchise. Oh, okay. I thought those were TV movies. I didn't know if they were actually cinema or not. I think they're straight to DVD, but still. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'd like to give out another Oscar. This one is a little more specific, and mm-hmm. I, I fully endorse this. This was your idea, Alexi. Uh, this is an Oscar for significant contributions 
to DVD culture. Would you like to explain why we're giving this award? I really do believe that Donnie Darko is kind of the epitome for movies that were sleeper hits on home video. That were like little discoveries that people would find mm. and it would eventually develop like a tenacious cult following. And the 2004 Director's Cut DVD edition of this film was a breakthrough moment in physical home media. <laughs> it really set a path for like that director's cut are something that people do want. The director, Richard Kelly, was given a significant amount of money to get back in that editing suite and cut the fuck up of this movie to bring his vision, he's closer to his original vision to the screen. And I think that it is... Like, he was given literally a quarter million dollars. Like, that was the budget for the director's cut DVD. Like, to actually make this movie closer to his original vision. Kind of unheard of back then. It was Mm. starting to happen. But now that's something that's, like, quite a common occurrence now. Especially, like... Uh, like movies that didn't quite find their audience entirely movies that have a big audience that's built up over time. I'm thinking about your blade runners. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about your Snyder cut acolytes. I'm thinking about Francis Ford Coppola coming back to Godfather part three and now calling it Godfather Coda, the death of mm-hmm. Michael Corleone, like mm-hmm. stuff like that happens a lot. Now Ridley Scott does it all the time. This was a breakthrough moment in those happening and it catching on in a way that would grab that audience even more, give them more to dissect. I first experienced this movie as a 2004 director's cut. I did not like it. Rewatched it again. Also did not like it. It over-explains too much. Mm. But, um, you know, there's the web, the Donnie Darko website that explains, like, what the tangent universe is, yeah. how Donnie Darko slipped into a tangent universe before that plane crash thing even happened. <laughs> and now it is his ability as um, uh, as a, the special person in this world to be yeah. able to realign our universe with the tangent universe, all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of stuff on that Donnie Darko website. They're still online and still looks like 2001. It's fucking but- crazy, all that shit. It's like when you read um, all that stuff about Primer, like all the mm-hmm. theory that went into Primer, and you're like, none of this made it onto the screen, dude. This yeah. is just all in your head. But that director's cut even has like pages of the book like imposed yeah. on the screen. Yeah. I just I think it detracts so much from like that gorgeous like surrealist ambiguity that this movie has in over explaining it. And I think like there's enough of that in the movie for like people to not really be that confused with what's going on. Yeah. But and then like if you want to do further reading, it's out there. I think putting it into the movie is a huge mistake. But that DVD was loaded with bonus features. And I need to give it to one in particular. There's a bonus feature on this DVD that I rewatched called Number One Fan, A Darkomentary. And this was a competition uh, to find the biggest Donnie Darko fan, and they would put the film that they made on the DVD release. And so this movie is made by and stars uh, a filmmaker called Todd Berger. And, like, the whole thing is him, like, going through his room, going, like, here are all my Donnie Darko DVDs, and there's, like, DVDs and VHSs of Donnie Darko, like, on a shelf. Like, probably about 40 of them. Yeah, that's going to be you in a few years, man. (laughs) I'm on the park. There's a new release just just come out, (laughs) and I'm thinking of buying it, even though I just bought it. But then, like, he's got, like, he's 
got printed out frames of like the movie, mm. like whole sections printed out. He's made like drawings that look like the drawings Tony Darko has done. And like just all of the things, all this stuff he's designed. He's like very weird and funny. He drives around in his car listening to the Donny Darko soundtrack going like, let me play you my favorite track. I love that. I don't know what instrument that is. But it's like, that was like outer spacey. Okay, here's Din Dani Dani Darko Dani 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 Darko. I stop. It's like you know they ask they ask um, gigolos or uh, uh, guys who get around like how many women you've slept with, and you know they're always like, oh, uh, you know I've lost count, you know, and I'm sort of like that in watching Donnie Darko because you know I've seen it so many times I just I've lost count like people are like how many times have you seen it you know and I always joke like oh a gentleman doesn't tell but that doesn't you know that doesn't make sense yes he'll go to the past it'll last in the past where he'll save all their lives and he'll oh go need go need go alternate universe need go it's like the breakdown and like you can watch this on youtube it's great he goes and meets richard kelly at like a comic-con type thing oh and he's like God. trying to get into comments he's like come here i want to whisper something to you and everyone's like what are you doing no don't do it don't do it mm. it's like i want to whisper something to you and then like you think it's going to be like the thing that yeah um Roberta Sparrow, Sparrow says, says yeah. to him but he just kisses him on the cheek and then runs off oh and my god i looked up this guy because i was like this guy's so funny how real how false is this like what is he doing now and so he has gone on to become a writer and director in hollywood he wrote and directed the movie it's a disaster oh what when was that when did that come out uh, it was about 2012 i believe with david cross and stuff and it's kind yeah, of like yeah. a disaster movie set just at a dinner table while the world is collapsing around them yeah that's right todd Berger, there it is <laughs> and he's like written and directed a lot of tv shows but also he uh todd Berger has like acted in a lot of stuff but another big significant credit is that he wrote the original draft of the happy time murders which got all that like blacklist screenwriting like cred around town so mm. it's like man this guy was a dvd feature and it was like carved out like a whole like fun career like in comedy in feature films in tv god that's so crazy and it all starts with this short film definitely check it out <laughs> number one fan a documentary <laughs> an incredible bonus feature that led to a fantastic career in film Oh my god, that's so funny. Hey, also, he is a screenwriter on, you're going to love this, The Smurfs, A Christmas Carol. Whoa! <laughs> oh my god, that might be a must-watch episode of The Smurfs. Yeah, you might have to buy that on Blu-ray or something. Man, this movie was such a find. Like, even just talking like Beth Grant, there's so mm. many like other like famous faces and familiar actors that pop up. Seth Rogen, like his debut yep. film. Jenna Malone yep. is fantastic as Gretchen. Mm -hmm. We didn't even really talk about her at all. Ashley yep. Tisdale pops up as a, as like a concerned teen during like the lecture. Oh, yeah. yeah. But another person that pops up 
who I could not believe was in this movie. Donnie Darko's therapist is played by Catherine mm. Ross. Yeah, who that's is, fucking awesome. That, she hadn't been in a movie in a long time. And she is a fantastic actor, fantastic movie star. She is the lead of The Graduate. She is like one of the main characters in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. She's Mrs. Sam Elliott, for goodness sake. She's an icon of cinema. And I think it's just like the perfect casting to bring the world of The Graduate into the world of Donnie Darko. Yeah, fuck. I forgot she was in this. It's so cool. Yeah, she's she's great in this too. She gets some really meaty scenes with Donald. And the parents. And Mr. The parents. and Mrs. Darkoid. Of course. She's heavily entrenched in the Darkoids. Oh, that's so good. Man, god damn it. What a fucking cool movie. I feel so lame for saying it, but yeah. <sighs> yeah. I reckon we can't release this episode. It's going to ruin my it's credibility. It's fucking embarrassing, man. We I like love it. Dottie Darko. <laughs> Cameron, we have come to that point in the podcast where we must consider the future of this franchise. There is, of course, the sequel, S. Darko, that is a directed DVD sequel. Richard Kelly was not involved. He does not recognize it. It upsets him when it is brought up in conversation, for goodness sake. So we are not recognizing S. Darko in our plans for the future of this world. But we must consider how one would remake this, how one would reboot this. Well, you know, they're saying that um, there's a sequel script in the works. I don't know that that's really? always... Whenever that talk comes up, you, mm. you've got to take it with a grain of salt. But I have read from even as recently as this year mm-hmm. that Richard Kelly has been <laughs> working on a screenplay after James Cameron, the <gasps> great James Cameron inspired him and said that there's more to explore within this world. Wow. And, you know, James Cameron knows a thing or two about stretching a franchise beyond uh, mm. <laughs> beyond the point of interest. But, uh, <laughs> but maybe, there's, maybe there's something to be said about it. I mean, if James Cameron loves that kind of world of, yeah. like, you know, time travel and destiny and fate and whatnot, maybe there is more to explore. And I like the idea of revisiting the character... 20 years down the line what's he Mm. doing in the fucking 2000s yeah i agree with that because i do think as well like there is something here and it's also such a classic thing like richard kelly this is a big kind of like interesting debut film it's Mm. definitely a, a important debut film and then he's next to directorial works while are good or interesting they fail to even capture the audience in any kind of way, Mm. the Mm. box and Southland tales. It's such a move of someone like that to go back to like what their hit was. Like there's so many directors like that end up going back to that. Well, and I think that there is something in like going back and sitting in 2001 and like making it set in 2001 Mm. and like finding that, like what the story is there and because I have not been able to stop thinking about Donnie Darko at all, <laughs> I like fully went in and started like actually thinking like if we did have Donnie Darko or we were like set to make something like this mm. and I got stuck in the idea of it has to be in 2001. I think that it has to be set in that mind fuck era of cinema. I think I've actually come up with like a movie. 
Yeah, okay. Hit me. So I was trying to think of like what the political anxieties were. Like as a young person, I was too young. I wasn't even a teenager around this time. But like thinking about, but I was a teenager in the 2000s. So Mm. I kind of know what like those political anxieties were. And like, I think so much of it was like that, that moving forwards in neoliberalism and that idea of American imperialism. Like, you know, the main anxiety that we had politically mm. is something that we're still stuck in is a war that we don't understand mm. in the Middle East that we don't know why we were there, especially back then. No one was explaining it. There is this conflict in the Middle East that feels hopeless and helpless. And I think that was like part of like, you know, my anxieties as a teenager. Like, why are we in this war? There's no end in sight for it. And I think that like it being this idea of American imperialism, but through, you know, that was a conflict that brought the UK, it brought Australia into it as well. So I thought there was something in like that idea of like, let's set in England. So it's like that third way of uh, English politics being trapped as like this little brother in like Mm. American imperialism, like even less Mm. reason to be in this conflict and like how helpless that feels like to be in like Tony Blair's, united kingdom mm. as you're like stuck in this war that he like why are you even there yeah and i also feel like that captures like that idea of like you know i feel like in this era england had so much more like modern day punk rebellion to like what mm. we were seeing in america yeah uh like there was actually like re- like rebelling against these things in really interesting and artistic ways so i reckon you go out there you set it in like council flats in england it's set in uh donnie darko's family are like a, a very assimilated migrant family maybe they're bosnian or something mm-hmm. so like they themselves are like put him into like this scholarship uh private school so there's the uniforms there's everything yeah and they've like assimilated a lot so like they're conforming to this new world rather than having their own cultural heritage you go out there you find the new nicholas holt you find the new riz ahmed you find the new dev patel and cast him as donnie darko and you know he's in this posh private school and he's the only one that sees the world for how it really is he's the only one that gets it everyone else is like part of this conforming world mm. part of like this third way of america or the third way of uh uk politics that is not tories it's not labor it's that third way that they're really stuck in and then all the tiny and dreamy shit is like computers now You've got the glow of those CRT screens, those <laughs> catheray tubes glowing everywhere. It's hacker shit, dude. Yes. We're fully in the mindfuck world of like 2001 cinema. You're in that kind of like cyberpunky, cyberspacey stuff. Yeah. And it, I had this idea for like the end of the movie. So, you know, we're getting the 2001 music in there. I'm listening to the 2001 Hottest 100, trying mm. to think about like what's going on. And this is the end of the movie. You get that like Jake Gyllenhaal kind of like, you know, he does that stare into the camera, like down, down the lens where he's looking in the mirror, kind of like that Kubrick stare where he's like smiling. Imagine that he's, you got this, you know, this young Dev Patel character staring down and then you starts glitching around and you start hearing that familiar sound of basement jacks. Where's your head at? Starts playing. (laughs) And he starts glitching around. He's glitching. He disappears. And then you see him. He's in the computer smiling. 
and then it cuts to black, and you've got, when the music really kicks in, it comes up, directed by Banksy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is so cool. I reckon that would win every British Film Institute award. Yeah. We're going to the BFIs, baby. We're going to the one. BFIs. We're going big at the BFIs. Absolutely. Oh, That's exciting. Yes. I love that. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'm going to make a mindfuck movie one day. It's going to be set in 2001 in the UK in a council flat estate. <laughs> you got to pitch it to Richard Kelly, man. Yeah. He's Richie. Like, Dude, I know you didn't like S. Darko, but I've got a brand new idea for a <laughs> spin-off. It's UK Darko, okay? Yeah, UK Darko. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's so cool. Dude. <laughs> What a dream. We finally did it. We finally got to talk about the coolest movie of all time. Yeah, and let me tell you, it's so sick. I love this movie. It's awesome. It's awesome, dude. dude. It made me want to... I actually... I got a joint ready. And then the movie started. And then I had the joint in my mouth. I had the match (laughs) held up. I was just about to light it. And then I went, you know what? I don't need this. This movie is already a trip. And I put the joint down. Yeah, I'm about to inhale some real thick green nonetheless. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Fun. Oh, that was fun. That was so fun. I love talking about Donnie Darko. I love talking about Screen Ages. Yeah, me too. So that was our Donnie Darko chat. Next week on the Screen Ages miniseries, Alexi has picked something a little bit special for us. What are we going to do, Yes, it's my choice. So I've decided to Mm. go with an anniversary film. It is Mm -hmm. the 30th anniversary coming up of an all-time teen movie classic that is a genre hybrid that we've not touched in this miniseries yet. And like Donnie Darko, it is an incredibly significant debut of an incredibly significant filmmaker we're going to be talking about for the 30th anniversary boys in the hood oh dude i'm very excited to do that one that's going to be a lot of fun i cannot wait to talk about that film it is an absolute masterpiece Hmm. so check it out i think there even may be screenings around town if you got a chance to go to the cinema you might actually be able to see boys in the hood in the next little while on the big screen so that's next week i might try and do that too i'd love to see it on the big screen it's such a great film oh man i'm excited we're gonna do it yeah me too i'm excited um thanks so much for listening everybody uh if you'd like to listen to more of us five dollars a month on patreon will get you extra content plus access to our special facebook group the cinephile registry which is non-stop 24 7 chats about flicks movies cinema and occasionally the small screen Yes, we do dive into television and yeah. Quibi, the even smaller screen yeah, every we now do, and then. We do talk a lot about Quibi on the <laughs> Cinephile Registry, so <laughs> go to patreon.com slash totalreboot. Five bucks a month will get you access to that. Um, I would also just quickly like to thank everyone who came out and watched my show on uh, at the Sydney Comedy Festival over the last few nights. Thank you so much for coming, guys. It was so much fun to have some cool, friendly faces in the crowd and who would laugh at my occasional DVD references. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I had a lot of fun doing it. Oh, it was absolutely marvellous, Cameron. I was lucky enough to be one of those people you were just speaking to then in your thank you for watching the show, because I was there. You were there. You were sitting behind a couple who were making out for most of the show. They actually were making out 
for I would almost say the entirety of the show. They were kissing, they were smooching. Um, they were having maybe the best time there, and a lot of people were having a great time. Yeah, a few people told me about that afterwards. I didn't see it, but more than one person said there was a couple making out during the show. So and they were in the middle of the room. They weren't <laughs> hiding in the corner. They were de- if you were to look from a bird's eye angle, they were the dead center of the entire room. Fucking hell, that's so funny. It oh, was warm yeah. in that room that night, Cameron. Oh, it was warm God. in that room. There was there was warmth in there. Um, follow us on Instagram. I'm at I am Cameron James, and you I'm are at this is Alexi. And one thing I want to give a little plugaroo to. It is coming up very soon on May fifteenth. I'm presenting one of the all time great screen ager films that we've discussed on this podcast way back in the early days of Total Reboot. I am giving a presentation and presenting a great movie called A Nightmare on Frickin' Elm Street. Awesome. Our friends at Static Vision have got a great... uh, have a great film festival happening in Sydney on the weekend of May 15th. It's three days of amazing films all in the realm of dreams. It's called Dreamscapes by Static Vision. And we actually have a little giveaway for the Jungle Babies listening to this. Uh, if you buy tickets to the screening of A Nightmare on Elm Street that I'm hosting, you can get $5 off if you use the code Film Not a Movie, And it is in there. You can buy them. Uh, you can get a double pass to it. It's a part of a double feature that night. But also check it out. Those guys do such great work. They've helped us out so much in the past here on Total Reboot with doing some of our live screenings during the pandemic. And mm. I would encourage you all to go check it out if you're in Sydney. That's Dreamscapes by Static Vision. It's around the 15th of May. And the code was film, not a movie, for $5 off. Mm Mm-hmm. For that session. Or if you want to buy a double pass or a five-film pass. Oh, amazing. Well, this was fun. I'm looking forward to the next chat. Mm-hmm. And, Me too. Uh, and, and also keep your suggestions coming in because we, we're going to tackle a new miniseries very soon and we're open to ideas. Yes, we. I cannot wait to look ahead at what else we're going to do on Total Reboot, but it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Cameron, about one of the great films in Richard Kelly's rich history in cinema. 